on the God is Just Like Jesus book. Um, if you need a copy of it, you can email me at chris at godisjustlikejesus.com. We're going to read Mark 10, 35 through 45. Kind of a little intense section. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He, re he replied. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Whew. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left, left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their high officials, they exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. <clears throat> okay, take a minute, and if you're with some people, discuss like what's happening here. What has Jesus just told them? What are James and John doing, and then what are the ten doing? If you're on your own, think about it or journal it. Hit pause right now and then come back. Okay, so hopefully you had a few moments to, to discuss that. And, I, you know, it's just my feeble attempts at trying to have some kind of conversation over a video, which um, hopefully will work a little bit. So Jesus, it's late in his three and a half year ministry. They're going up to Jerusalem for the last time. He's going to die. He breaks it down for them yet again. They, they understand he is the Messiah that's been prophesied for 6,000 years. I mean, the first prophetic declaration of Jesus goes back to um, Joseph and some really early stuff, even in the garden in uh, Genesis. They get it, but they don't understand he's going to do spiritual reform and heart-level repentance before he returns Israel to a place of prominence and delivers them from the Romans and other oppression and puts them back on top. So he keeps trying to tell them, it's not, this isn't going to happen the way you guys think it's going to happen with me leading a giant movement, throwing off the Romans, and then you're, you know, at my left and right here in this age and in the next age. He keeps telling them, I'm going to go to the cross. And they don't know that he's got to atone for human sin. He has to pay for human sin so that human beings don't have to pay for it themselves and there's a way out. So he tells them this and then wham, the next thing you know, Peter and John, they rush him and they're like, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want to sit at your left and right in all of eternity. It's like the biggest thing you could ask Jesus for ever. And, uh, and they go for it. <clears throat> 
so it's this argument once again about who is the greatest and they're trying to make this grab for the greatest position right next to Jesus. Now, if you read in the text, um, what did the 10 do, right? And, and if you didn't, hit pause and go read it. It says that when the 10 heard about this and what James and John did, they became indignant. They were furious, fuming, hacked off, angry, upset. I mean, seriously upset. So again, you have this whole argument swelling up for the second time at least. These are just the ones that's recorded, um, and it might have happened a lot more times. And again, this happens all over the business world, all over politics, all over the, the kingdoms of the earth, all through human history, if you read it. And it's in people. It's in me. It's in you. It's in human nature. And and here's this sin just coming up, this selfish ambition and this promoting of oneself to be the greatest. Well, take a moment, hit pause, and then I want you to talk about and think about what's Jesus's reaction and contrast that to, you know, if a Pharisee had been saying this or somebody that was really legalistic or intense, what could their reaction have been? Um, and then also process yourself. You know, if you got kids and you've dealt with them over a subject a number of times and they keep doing it, like this is yet again, they're arguing about who's the greatest. How do you usually react? I know how I usually react. And if it's a situation that we've been addressing time and time again, like don't throw rocks at your brother, right? But, but it's not time number one I'm talking about. It's time number two, three, four, five, ten. I get a little more upset. <clears throat> but you think about things and then come back. So hit pause for a minute. Okay, so it's the argument about who's the greatest again. The ten are furious and hacked off. James and John have made their power play. And look at what the text says. It says Jesus calls them together and then talks to them. I mean, it's, it's the, all right, guys, we're going to bring it in. No, no, no. I'm not having you guys over here and you two over here, all of you together, right? A little church split here, a little struggle over division. Um, and I laugh a little bit, but I mean, it's sin, it's real. And you got to ask yourself, how does Jesus respond to this? And when you read how he responds to them, he basically patiently instructs them one more time. Does he have a meltdown? No. Does he get furious? No. Does he shame them and say, you know, I can't believe you guys. I've been preaching the Sermon on the Mount. We've had 20,000 people the last time I did it. Didn't you? The whole kingdom is about serving and giving. I can't believe you guys. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even fault find it or accuse them. He actually moves right in to patient instruction. And he just basically says, you know, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, they have all this hierarchy. They use it to lord it over one another. Not in my kingdom. This is not what I'm, I'm going towards. And I need you guys to turn the corner and learn something different. In fact, he uses himself and talks about himself. He goes, heck, I didn't even come to be served, but I'm serving you and everyone. And ultimately, I'm going to the cross for ultimate service for human beings to wipe out their sins so that they don't have to be punishable for them on their own. He goes, I'm going to take the punishment. I'm going to deliver people. He goes, I am the servant. Follow me. And so basically the whole thing is patient instruction. And it's amazing just to see that in the midst of their sin, their competition, to see that Jesus doesn't have a meltdown. 
he uh, instructs them, and yes, there's some challenge, but he does it to build them up, not to tear them down. And time and time again, he does that. So on the takeaway section, let's uh, use the verse I have there, which is John 12, 45. It's just like John 14, 9. Uh, John 12, 45 says, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. So in just a moment, he says one sentence and he's saying, if you're looking at me, you're seeing the invisible God who created the universe and the earth. If you want to know what God's like, look right at Jesus. So that means, well, hit pause for a moment. What does that mean? What do you see in this passage in Jesus and what does that tell you about the Father? And then come back. So... There's a number of things to take away. One, if Jesus isn't accusing them, isn't, excuse me, rejecting them for their sin, a competition, isn't shaming them, that means God's not. And so if you're hearing voices of condemnation when you sin, that's not God's voice. God may convict us when we sin, but that conviction leads us to turn around and then you know, say, I don't want to do that anymore and I want to care about the person I'm hurting. It leads to us um, reaching higher. The devil's condemnation, which is whose voice it is, he condemns us just to beat us down and keep us in a pattern of sin. Oh, I'm no good. I can't believe I did it again. I hurt this person. And you just keep repeating, repeating, repeating because condemnation does that to us. You really want to get out of sin? Listen for the Father's voice of conviction that leads you higher leads you to repentance, that he says, I love you, take a breath and do something different. So, first thing is he's not shaming this. Secondly, if Jesus is patiently instructing, that means the Father's patiently instructing. And so, when we're trapped in sin, we need to hear his voice. He's patiently leading us out. And yes, sometimes there's correction and discipline, and we'll talk about that at other times, but even then, he's not trying to tear us down. He's trying to get us to turn and, and grow and have more life and goodness. So the last thing to do with this, worship without music. Take these passages out and just talk to him and worship him, right? Sometimes we think worship has to be with music. You can just take it out. Jesus, I love the fact they're, they're wrestling about who's the greatest. They're sinning and you patiently instruct them to teach them and to grow them. You're not beating them down. You're not tearing them up. You're not having a meltdown. I love the fact that that's the way you're treating them and that's the way you're treating me. Huh, maybe I need to even change how I talk about myself. Maybe I need to change how I'm you know, relating to my children or my spouse. But it all comes from that interaction of knowing how he's relating to us is healthy and it's good. It's not filled with dysfunctional motivation methods like shame, bitterness, rejection, you know, and condemnation. Anyway, day number four.